1: There are a lot of Christian cliches in the American church, and like most cliches, they exist because they are true. One such cliché is this. Perhaps you've heard it. Christianity is not a religion. It is a relationship. Perhaps you've said that yourself. Christianity is not a religion. It is a relationship, which is true, but also false. See, if you're talking about Christianity in a broader sense, it is a religion. If you're talking about Christianity as it is listed as one of the most prominent world religions, along with Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism, it is a religion. In fact, in that context, it would be misleading and, frankly, illogical to say that Christianity is not a religion, but a relationship. On the other hand... If you are talking about your personal Christianity, your individual Christian faith, then yes, Christianity is not a religion. It is a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And therein lies the confusion. In some regards, being religious is nothing but outward show and possibly inward deception. In other regards, being religious is an outworking of true faith. Both those contrasting ideas are explained in our passage this morning as James gives us a quick and admittedly unique summary or compendium of the true Christian religion. Please join me in the final two verses of James chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 of James chapter 1. James writes, If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God our Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. So this morning, as we unpack exactly what is Christianity, what is true religion, We're going to look at three measurements of true religion, three measurements of true religion, obviously within the context of the Christian faith. In other words, James lays out three specific aspects of human life as well as Christian faith that for him epitomize what it means to truly live out the Christian faith. Three measurements of true religion. The first is the worthlessness of words, the worthlessness of words. Let me read for you again, verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. James begins by giving us a measurement that tells us when our religion is not true religion. In fact, he says when it is worthless. And there is perhaps no place in the New Testament more well known for the teaching about the tongue or speech than James chapter 3. Here at the end of chapter 1, he gives us a bit of an introduction. He says, no matter how religious you may be on the outside, you understand that's more than just wearing a cross or how you dress, the, the actions, the words that people see. No matter how religious you may be on the outside, the reality is if you cannot control your tongue, then you are deceiving yourself with your religiosity, which is actually just a sham, and you are just deceiving others as well. Let's find out what he means. Religious here means externally religious, going through the motions, an external observance of all the aspects of public worship. This is not just someone who says, well, I'm a cultural Christian, I go to church a couple times a year. This is someone who is deeply religious, attending church every week, maybe twice a week, praying, fasting, giving, helping. This may be someone who's bringing meals to the church or bringing meals to people within the church. This may be a teacher of Sunday school. This may be the the most well-known and prolific volunteer in our church, sacrificing, having the right theology, sharing the gospel with others, all the ceremony, all the external ritual. And this is not just someone who does and says all the right things. This is someone who in his heart has a high regard for such things. He enjoys these things. He wants to do these things. These things are very important to him. He is religious. And he considers himself the same way anyone who observes him would. This guy's very religious. And notice the glaring reality here. None of that is an indication of true religion. In fact, none of it, James says, is worth anything if you can't control your tongue. You see, this goes back to the same principle of love, where if you do anything without love, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, it is worthless. And We understand there may be some sort of practical help. You brought a meal, people are no longer hungry. You gave money, people can now use that money for something. You help stack chairs, you help do whatever that helps the congregation. That's not what James is talking about. He's saying in the eyes of God and for your own sake, for your own spiritual growth, possibly for your own salvation, it is absolutely worthless. And so we are not to gauge by notes. see that person benefited from what I did it is about your relationship with God. And it comes back to the tongue. And the specific terminology that James uses is the same that he will use in chapter 3 bridling or using a bridle on the tongue. Speaking of the bridle that one would use that goes in the horse's mouth. And because of the slight pressure and pain, you can control where the horse goes with the reins that are connected to that bit and bridle in his face. And so James uses this imagery to speak of the ability to control one's speech. The tongue, metaphorically referring to any speech, the bridle, metaphorically referring to control. This takes us back to the call to be slow to speak back in verse 19 as an aspect of receiving and living out the Word of God. So, Here's the picture thus far. You have an individual who does and says all the right things according to the scriptures, but ultimately does not control his tongue. It is not that everything that comes out of his mouth is wicked and evil, but there is no overarching control of the tongue because something eventually slips out. And so James goes on to say this person deceives his own heart. In other words, this person may not even know how bad his spiritual state is. Why? Because this person is relying on his external observance of the law rather than on an internal faith and holiness. He's just looking at what other people see, the external behavior I'm always there. I always attend. I always participate. I always speak truth. I can quote scripture. I can help people. I bring food. I donate money. They're just looking at the externals. And James is saying that doesn't mean anything. And that's not unique to James. God has been saying this since day one. He looks at the heart. and We know that this internal faith and holiness is not there in this person because of what he says, because of what he talks about, because the tongue is an indicator of what is in his heart. and If the heart is controlled by God, then the tongue will be also. So if the tongue does not represent the Lord, then it is an indication that the heart does not belong to the Lord. And you say, wait a minute. If the speech is an indication of the worthlessness of religion, you just said the external religion is actions and words. See, we're all good at controlling our tongues in front of other Christians. We're all good at controlling our tongues in front of authorities when the cop pulls us over because we know how to be nice when it matters, when we will get hurt if we say the wrong things. But when we're behind closed doors, when we're with people that we've never met before, when we're with people that it doesn't matter, when we're with people that we're overly familiar with, namely close friends, but more to the point probably family, that's when the real you comes out. And that's when the real speech that is an indicator of your heart comes out. I said this is nothing new. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. So we see that Jesus speaks of this and sets up that principle himself. The connection of the speech and the heart. Verses 18 and 19 of Matthew 15. Jesus says, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and slanders. Turn back a couple pages to Matthew chapter 12. Verses 34 and 35. Matthew 12, 34 and 35. Jesus says this, The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings Out of his good treasure what is good, and the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. The treasure, the storehouse, being the heart. And what is brought out of that storehouse, that treasure, is his or her words. Their speech. This is why Jesus can go on to say in the next verses in Matthew 12, But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment for by your words, you'll be justified and by your words, you will be condemned. That doesn't make sense unless it's connected to what he's already said about the lips, the words coming out, reflection of your heart. Otherwise we would all go to heaven by cutting out our tongues. We would train, the most important thing we would train our kids is don't ever say anything. And, and these are the kind of misinterpretations that people have used to justify many, many gross things. In the name of the Lord, self-mutilation, things like that. But we understand he's saying this because it's a reflection of your heart. Your words are a reflection of if Jesus is truly there. Your words are a reflection of Jesus. if Jesus is not there. Or how much you serve Him, how much you desire Him, how much you worship Him. You see, justification or condemnation at the end of days is not because of our works or our words, but whether or not we truly worship God. But whether or not we truly worship God is a matter of the heart, which is revealed by the tongue. And that's why no matter how Christian you behave on the outside, if your tongue is not controlled All your Christian values, all your Christian upbringing, all your Christian actions, all your Christian words are worthless. Literally vain, empty, futile, dead. All that external holiness, all that sacrifice you made, showing up on time, being the last to leave, cleaning up, serving, sacrificing, giving, teaching, evangelizing, all of it is not holy at all. It is worthless. God looks at the heart and we know the heart by your words. And notice too, again, that this person may not even be aware of the situation. James says he deceives his own heart. There's a self-deception there. People who are struggling with knowing whether or not they are truly saved often ask me, how can I know for sure? Pastor, I'm doubting my salvation. How can I know for sure that I am saved? The answer to that is first and foremost the gospel. Do you believe and have you accepted the gospel? Say, yes, I did that many years ago, but now I'm, I'm just still not sure. Well, James gives us a second clue. What comes out of your mouth? What do you talk about? especially when we are doubting our salvation or feeling guilty over sin as a Christian, we try to push harder. We try to do more in the church to make up for it as if suddenly works achieve God's favor. But you're only fooling yourself if your words are unholy because they come straight from your heart. So do you do all the things that a good Christian does? But then you go home and you're constantly yelling at your spouse, constantly berating your children. It's a reflection of your heart and you have deceived yourself. Are you a good Christian here on Sunday mornings, but all you do when you're alone with others is gossip, slander, have a critical spirit? People think you're wise and holy, but if they because of all the things that you can point out that is wrong about the Christian church. But if we step back, we think all this guy does is criticize. All he does is go home and say, this guy doesn't do this right. And this guy did this and this guy should be doing this and that guy should be doing that. And the church should be doing this and the church is failing here. And say, oh, wow, thank you. Man, you really are in tune with what the Lord wants for the church. And though it may be helpful for us, their heart may actually be far from God because their lips are reflecting a critical spirit. Maybe your words are not about others. They're saturated with just general things that are not of the Lord. Maybe all you do is talk about money. All you do is talk about work. All you do is complain about your circumstances. I'm single. I'm unhappily married. I have a bad boss. Look, we all get angry. We all say hurtful things. We all tend to vent our frustrations. That's the reality of being a saved sinner. But if that kind of speech has not gotten better over time as you have progressed in your spiritual life, then you need to see and check if you are deceiving yourself. If you are not truly worshiping the the Lord or perhaps you never have because you're not a believer. If you look at your life and relationships are still strained because of your anger, if arguments are more the rule than the exception, if relationships have actually been fixed by the, because the people you berate have forgiven you, but you haven't changed, then you need to take a hard look at your life to see if you truly belong to the Lord and if you are truly serving Him. As brothers and sisters of people like this, we need to be careful. We are not to judge. We are not to condemn or slander. But we need to be there for biblical admonishment and encouragement. I hear it all the time. Yeah, all he does is yell at me. All she does is criticize everything. But I'm sure he's a believer because, you know, they've been going to church for decades. Their deacon. He's an elder of his church. Look how much he serves. And James is telling us that this man is not to trust in those things, so neither should we. I get it. We want people to be saved. And as much as we pray for unbelievers in our lives, how much harder it is to recognize this person that has been a believer in my life for decades may not be a believer. And we don't want to say that we want to justify to our own hearts. No, no, no. They're saved. They're Christian. Look, look, look at how they act at church. They must be saved. But James is saying, look at their words. Look at their speech. Because when you hear their words, you see their hearts. Constantly criticizing, constantly yelling, constantly berating, constantly angry. Constantly gossiping, slandering. No one does those things to fit in, to look good. We do the opposite to look good. Those things come out when we're alone, when we're with family. And those are the true things that represent what is in our heart. And even if they can, for the most part, control and catch themselves, someone may look religious on the outside, but sooner or later, they're going to open their mouth and destroy the facade. If this is you, You need to repent. You need to stop burying what's in your heart as reflected in your words with good deeds externally, convincing yourself you're a believer only to be among those who are declared by God Himself I never knew you, depart from me. And as Christians, we cannot help with the deception. We cannot overlook the heart, the evil in the heart that is spilling out in their words and be like, no, 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 no. You know, God forgives. You're okay. You're a Christian. I was there at that camp when you gave your life to Christ. That's not biblical love. It's not biblical encouragement, admonishment, rebuke, whatever you want to say. We need to understand the reality of, of how we see the heart and it is words. Words reflect the heart. And so we have seen what true religion is not. Let's move on to our second measurement of true religion. To start looking at what true religion is. The second is the cleanliness of compassion. The cleanliness of compassion. James 1.27 Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their distress. Let's stop there. The rest of the verse will be our third point. We're talking about what true religion looks like. And we just finished talking about what true religion is not. And now James is clearly going to give us a picture of what true religion is. So much so that he introduces his description as pure and undefiled religion. Both pure and and undefiled refer to something that is unmixed, pure. Pure emphasizes cleanliness. Undefiled speaks of being uncontaminated. And we, when used of religion, they both have the idea of being without hypocrisy. This is further clarified by the term in the sight of our God and Father. In other words, according to God's standard, or we would say in God's eyes, Again, he has just completely debunked external religion in others' eyes or even in our own eyes. And now he says true religion is, of course, what is seen in God's eyes, what God sees. And there's a clear contrast from the individual in verse 26 who is religious in the eyes of men and even himself because of his actions Whereas pure and undefiled religion, James says, in the eyes of God, considers the heart and not just the actions. This is a good reminder of several things. First, our behavior is ultimately gauged by God. So he should be our ultimate standard and our ultimate motivation. Not the praise of man, not trying to look religious before others, but God. How do we know what his standard is? God's word. Second, religion that is pure and undefiled can only be deemed as such by God himself. Purity is a matter of the heart, and only God can see the heart. So only God can gauge. I want to say this now before I forget When he talks about purity, we're talking about one's faith, one's religion, one's worship. Not purity in the sense of avoiding lust or sexual immorality. This is just purity in terms of purity of your faith in general. Back to the text. When we talk about hypocrisy, it can be defined as this. When what is in your heart, or what you confess to believe... Does not match your actions. We often see hypocrisy played out in this scenario. Where someone says something, but they do the opposite. Right? They say, don't do this, but they themselves go and do it. Or they say, we need to do this as believers, but they themselves do not do it. That's usually the scenario that we would say that's hypocritical. Right? You're telling your brother not to yell but you're yelling at your sister. And that is hypocrisy. But more often, it is deeper than that. It is about the heart not matching up with the actions. Much like the Pharisees. Great example. Right? They were doing all this stuff externally, the most religious of all men, and yet Jesus condemns them and says, you're whitewashed tombs. In other words, you're dead and evil inside, but outside you've cleaned it white so you look good in front of men. Like the Pharisees, we can easily know what to do and do things for show in the church or around other believers or even in a failed attempt to honor God to make ourselves feel better. And by the way, Jesus condemned the Pharisees for having these long, elaborate prayers and giving to the poor out in the public spaces, the Gospels say, where people can see them in the modern church. This, the local congregation on Sunday mornings, and when you are around other believers, would be our equivalent of the public spaces where we can fall in the trap of performing our hypocrisy. If these actions do not match up with what we truly believe or what we claim to believe or what is truly in our hearts, then it is not pure and undefiled religion. And we had a great example of this in verse 26 Seemingly holy on the outside, but the window to the soul, his words show otherwise. We want religion that is pure and undefiled. Before I explain what that entails, I want to clarify that James is not going to give us a complete definition of what religion is, even the Christian religion. He is giving an illustration that shows us what the right heart or spirit of worship is. And on this passage, John Calvin wrote, James does not define generally what religion is here but reminds us that religion, without the things he mentions, is nothing. So what are these things? To visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Let's start with the first. To visit does not mean to just stop by. It means to stop by and provide some sort of help. The same word is used in the Septuagint, the authoritative Greek Old Testament, of God visiting people in the sense of rescuing or saving. And so we understand that that word visiting in the Greek does not just mean like, I'm going to stop by for a visit. It has this idea of doing more, so much so that that same word is used of God saving people. So take out that kind of thought we have right? Stop by for a visit, but it means something more. In fact, the Greek word goes so far as to carry the idea of exercising oversight on, the behalf, on behalf of someone else. And this is really interesting. It's actually, visit, has the same Greek root as the word overseer in First Timothy. Elder, pastor, Paul's instructions for the elders in running the church, it is the same root word as we have here, visit orphans and widows. Which makes sense in the context of a widow or an orphan, because sometimes you will need to get into their lives and take charge. For an orphan, you would need to take charge of their, depending on their age, their eating, their dressing, their clothing. You would take that over. For a widow, perhaps you would need to take charge of their finances, their homes, even their very lives when necessary. But why widows and orphans? First of all, James is continuing a theme throughout Scripture. There is an Old Testament emphasis on these two groups of people as special targets for service, love, and care. In Deuteronomy chapter 14, we learn that in that elaborate system of tithing that the Israelites had, one-third of the Israelites' crop was to be given. And we, we know this. And we automatically think, yeah, because the Levites were not allowed to work, and so the Levites, who were not just their priests and their worship leaders, they were also their judges, they were also their police, all, all of those types of things, of social services... But if you read Deuteronomy 14, the third of the, of the crop was given to support not just the Levites, but also so the widows and the orphans and the aliens could eat. In Jeremiah 7, 6, one of the requirements, requirements for Israel to avoid God's judgment was to not oppress the orphan or the widow. And by the way, that is found in a list of requirements that also includes not shedding innocent blood or following after false gods. That's the same level that God puts that. Very important. The care of widows and orphans has always been a big deal to the Lord. And the reason for this, and this is very important, Because when we read this passage, it does not translate directly into 21st century America, at least. I would say it would translate directly in other countries, but not in the United States and other developed countries. The reason for this special care of orphans and widows in biblical times were because they were the neediest people in Israel. They were the neediest people in the early early church. Because during those times, there was no welfare. There was no government provision of social services. There was no life insurance. And women and children could not get jobs. In other words, there was no way to provide for themselves, and the government did not do that. So outside of help from family which was not available in a biblical-timed marriage because the woman would leave and go somewhere else with the husband, the immediate family was often no longer involved. And so, upon becoming a widow, there was no family around. In the case of the orphan, by very definition of what an orphan is, there is no family anyways. So outside of family help, there was no hope for orphans and widows outside of true Christian love. Now we start getting to the point. This is also why they are mentioned together because even though they are two different classes of people, they were both the most open and vulnerable to affliction and neglect and during that time even exploitation. This is... The distress that James says characterizes their lives literally tribulation, pressure, affliction. And when we take care of these kinds of people, we are modeling the love of the Father who is known as the special protector of widows and orphans. A lot of times when we look at the love of God and the grace of God, it is in stark contrast with what we naturally would do and in very stark contrast to what our culture and society does. And that was the case too when the scriptures say specifically God is the father of widows and orphans. This would have been shocking to people. Why would you care about such people? So it highlights how deep and wide God's love is don't turn there i'll read it for you deuteronomy 10:18 he executes justice for the orphan and the widow psalm 68 and verse 5 a father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is god in his holy habitation and those passages that talk about His special love and care for orphans and widows is not just telling, is not telling us what God does. They are in passages that describe His character by pointing out, then extolling His compassion. That is the point. We are to have compassion. When we take a step back and we look at the big picture, We see that James is saying that the Christian who does not have compassion has reason to doubt he is a Christian at all. It is part and parcel of who God is. It is to be part and parcel of who we are. If you lack compassion, you need to question whether you are truly saved. Compassion is not just feeling bad for someone. Compassion involves action, especially for the most neglected and afflicted, orphans and widows. Although things are very different in our country, as I mentioned in terms of financial provision from the government and insurance policies as well as employment opportunities for women, There is still a distress that widows and orphans endure these days in America that the church must be aware of and respond to. And this often means more than just providing financially. That's part of it. But the reality is, if we had such people in our church and we could not as a church provide for them, we understand that there is welfare. Not ideal, but they still would have enough to eat and survive. And that's why it doesn't directly translate. The widows and orphans back then didn't have any of this. As much as we want to criticize what that looks like in that country, some saying it shouldn't exist, others saying it's not enough. The reality is it exists. In fact, 1 Timothy 5.3 specifies that the churches to provide for widows that he says are, quote, Widows indeed, which is very interesting. What does that mean, widows indeed? Widows indeed would be widows who have no family and no way to support themselves or their family, no insurance, no welfare, anything like that. Now that being said, since the underlying theme is compassion, there are other aspects of service that we are to engage in. We are to help with the kids. We are to help with the home. We are to use your imagination. Especially if you are a married woman, go through your day, not just physically, your bedtime routine, your bills, your whatever it is, And think what you would need help with if your husband was no longer here. And that's how we can help our widows. But that's widows. We also have orphans. Those who have lost their parents. Biblically, a child was considered an orphan if they only lost one parent. But that goes back to the reality, if that parent is the father, then nobody left has any means of eating or supporting themselves in any way. And so for us, we think of an orphan who has uh, no parents, whether through death or more commonly around here, through imprisonment or removal by social services. Now, when we think about orphans, we know that there are plenty of good Christian organizations. There are a lot of Christian organizations that are so-so, to be honest with you. And when I say good Christian organizations, I mean ones that don't just help orphans around the world, but also share the gospel with them. There are A lot of good Christian organizations, which you can support their organization in general or specific children. I believe the majority of our church does that. Right? You have a picture somewhere on your, your refrigerator or filed away of a specific individual that you give $38 a month to and they can you know, buy seed to grow and eat and things like that. These are great. That's wonderful. We all should be doing that. But what James is talking about here is the local church. We need to be directly involved in the lives of orphans who are in our church. Grace Church of the Bay Area, we have multiple widows in our church. Currently, we do not have any orphans. But we need to understand that if that situation does come, we need to be prepared and we need to do what is pure and undefiled religion. Some of you know that we don't have orphanages in America. It was replaced by the foster care system, which rose up in the 50s, 1950s. By the 1960s, it was so established and enough families wanted to be foster families that orphanages were gone. They were unnecessary in the United States. It's a much better program and system. They're in actual homes, actual families. I say that because you have to understand that in the United States of America in 2022, foster children are orphans. We don't call them orphans. I don't think it's PC. It's not even technically accurate because they're not in orphanages. They're in foster homes. But foster children are orphans. And if something happens within God's sovereignty to both parents of children in our church, rather than letting them go into the foster system, someone in this church has to adopt them. Not be a father figure. Not, oh, spiritually adopt them, we're going to hang out with them, adopt them. We need to take care of our own pure and undefiled religion. On a broader scale, there is a small but growing movement to get churches more involved in the foster system. As a church, we have partnered with a Christian organization that is mobilizing churches to do just that. And more of us in this church need to consider fostering. Whether you have kids still at home or finally empty nesters, fill that nest with orphans, foster children. Ultimately, big picture, what we are talking about is compassion specifically for the down and out, the exploited and forgotten. Whether it's, widows and orphans or the poor and homeless. We need to have compassion for those who are among us because in God's eyes, that is true religion. But James doesn't stop there. There is another aspect of true religion or as he puts it, pure and undefiled religion. We see this in our final measurement of true religion, the power of purity. We've seen the worthlessness of words, the cleanliness of compassion, and the power of purity. Again, purity in the sense of your general faith, not just purity in terms of uh, sexual immorality. The end of verse 27. Pure and undefiled religion is also to keep oneself unstained by the world. Now, the world... We know does not refer to the physical world per se, the neutral, mundane or even necessary things of the world, the nature around us, our jobs, our family, cars, things like that. Rather, when we talk about the world here, this is a reference, as it is elsewhere in the New Testament, to the immoral and unbiblical worldview and lifestyle that characterizes those that are unbelievers, that characterizes our culture and society. These are the fallen, sinful systems of philosophy and values of the world around us. And I want you to be careful here because when I use words or when we hear words like philosophy and values, we can often see some sort of lofty ideology that doesn't really work itself out in your day-to-day, your real actual life but you know that it does it does every day as you encounter different people as the government passes different bills and enacts different laws you know that it impacts you you literally see it every day around here often to such a degree that other parts of the country can't even believe how bad it is here in the San Francisco Bay Area or depending on how they view it, how good it is in their minds. There have been times where you have noticed this blasted, plastered on that very wall as we meet in a public high school. Things that are anti-God, things that are anti-Christian But some of us read those things and like, that's not anti-God. I don't know. Why were the ushers asking if we can take that down? See, the danger is we get so used to how the world is around us that we don't realize how wicked it is. We say, as long as we don't do those things, we're okay. But then we're entertained by these wicked things on the television screen or in our books. We need to be careful. And all of these things are summarized by the term the world. And we, James says, are to keep ourselves unstained by them. We are to remain pure. We are to remain spotless. We are not called to avoid the world. We have to be in it. Because this is where we are salt and light. This is the plan of God. You don't rejoice over being enlisted as a soldier in the army and say, oh, but I'm not going to the enemy. No, I'm staying here the base where there's good food. My parents live two miles away. No, you signed up to be sent into enemy territory. The difference of this is we were the enemy. And we're just now still living where we used to thrive and enjoy the things of the world. And encourage and promote the things of the world. But now we are saved. And we stay here. Because we know how bad it is. Because we used to be there. we're saying, hey guys, come on along. There's something better. Come with me. We can't leave the world. Doesn't work. Doesn't fulfill the plan of God. People have tried this. With monasteries. With forcing representatives, so-called representatives of God to not get married, all of those things backfire. They don't work. They make things much, much worse. We can't let the world stain our hearts, our minds, our consciences, our faith while we remain in the world. It's only in staying aligned with Christ as his redeemed can you swim in these filthy waters and remain unstained. And notice, this does not come naturally. James commands us, keep, the word keep yourself unstained. There's diligence. There's hard work involved. There's a constancy that you will constantly be cleansing yourself until the day you see Jesus face to face. And how we are to do this is actually found in the meaning of that word keep in the Greek. It literally means to observe or to guard. So we are to take pains to observe our faith, to guard our faith, our lives, our holiness, to maintain our spiritual condition. Not to close our eyes to reality or naively convince ourselves the world is not as bad as it seems because you know it is. Or to close our eyes and naively think, well, I'm saved, the world's not going to influence me. If you think that, it's quite possible that you have been more influenced than you already want to be. But what it means is to recognize the evil influences around us, to maintain purity and attitude and action. And as we saw last week, prioritizing not a political agenda or global change, but prioritizing our own personal holiness first. No matter how holy you are, No matter how spiritual you are, no matter how much you truly live out pure and undefiled religion, even the best of men get splattered when walking through the mud. But the key is not to let it sit and dwell and eventually stain. Get rid of it fast. Clean off the grime through repentance right away. Don't let it fester. Don't let it grow. I just explained to my oldest son this morning about angles and trajectory, right? A one, two, three degree angle doesn't seem like much. In fact, I could keep my hands pressed together and it's probably not zero degrees. It's a small angle. It doesn't look like anything. But you move this... One, two miles further in that direction, the gap, we're in a different city. The gap is huge. And so we need to deal with sin right away. Repent now. Repent of that fleeting thought. Don't wait till it gets down to the internet and then sinking out other people. Deal with that frustration now before it gets to yelling and then punching. And then hurting. I was explaining this to my son. To help him understand. That his frustration. If he doesn't get a hold of it. His frustration with his brothers now. It becomes something uncontrollable in the future. Slam closed your laptop. The minute you start typing. Not after those pictures show up. Walk away when you are tempted to insult. Not after you get that jab in. We need to deal with it before it stains. This principle cannot be left without a reference to Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, which says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. By the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Transformation comes from God. Transformation comes from the Word of God. Transformation comes from keeping, as we see here in James 1, doing the work to let the Holy Spirit do what He needs to do, to let the Word influence your life more than just check mark, got it done, read it this morning. Rather than being squeezed into the mold. That's what conform means. Being pushed into the shape of whatever the world is. Feminism today shape you like feminism. LGBTQ today shape you like LGBTQ. Abortion tomorrow shape you like abortion. Whatever it is, you're just being squeezed into whatever the world says for whatever reason. Rather be transformed. And when we are transformed, when we remain unstained, we are characterized by holiness, by moral and spiritual purity, not perfection, but living such that the core commitment and pursuit of your life is holiness, not external religious behavior, but genuine holiness, which if you truly have that, you can't control the behavior that's going to come out, but start from within. Let me put it this way. The overarching theme of your life is to be moral and spiritual purity. And even when the theme of a book, for example, is a detective solving a crime, there will be certain chapters that divert from that theme. There'll be a romance over here, a bit of comedy over there. It's not a romantic novel. It's not a comedy. It's a mystery. It's a detective novel. And in the same way, there will be sinful tendencies in our lives. There will be temptations. There will be giving in to those temptations. And we will divert from the main theme of our life. But the overarching theme is to be what James is calling for here. Compassion. Holiness. Hatred of sin. And that is true religion. The worthlessness of words, the cleanliness of compassion, and the power of purity. Indeed, Christianity is both a religion and a relationship. For the true believer, see it as merely a religion and you'll end up behaving religiously while deceiving yourself. Embrace it as a relationship with Christ and you will have compassion and moral purity. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God, our father is this to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this clear passage. Though what is written here seems at first glance strange. It seems like peripheral issues. I thank you that your scriptures are so clear about what true religion really is. Help us to be people who, if we are deceiving ourselves by our religiosity, may we look into our hearts so that we could truly repent as a believer repenting of our sins or as an unbeliever who has deceived himself or herself repenting to salvation unto Christ. Help us to be those who have compassion, especially for those who are so easy to overlook, especially those that our culture overlooks. Give us wisdom and how to minister to orphans in the future and widows today. And Lord help us to be unstained by the world. Not just the wickedness that is around us, but also, Lord, help us to be guard ourselves from being swept up and even what the conservative politicians in a worldly way pursue driving us into a frenzy of slander and anger in the pursuit of ending something sinful. That too, Lord, we know is being stained by the world to even pursue good things in a sinful way. Help us to focus not on others first, the world first, agendas first, but our own walk with You. And may we be those who can rightfully say by the grace of god and by his power alone my religion is true religion i pray these things in jesus name amen well let's